Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hello and thank you for tuning in. My name is Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box, the place where every Thursday I sit down with one person and talk about the music that makes them who they are. My guest today is not in the studio with me. We're recording remotely, but we are both broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by comedian, TikToker and writer for The Chaser, Gabby Bolt. Gabby's also a musician, so as we roll through the songs and stories from Gabby's life, we are going to hear those two things combine. Yes, we do have live renditions coming up on Out of the Box today. We are also going to talk about Gabby's upcoming show, I Hope My Keyboard Doesn't Break, which kicks off at the Factory Theatre tonight. So much to get through. Let's jump right in. Gabby Bolt, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's an honour. Oh, it's an honour for me as well. <laughs> So music has obviously played a really big role in your life. It still does. When did it first enter the scene? I mean, I've always been sort of listening to music. My parents were both fans of music. My dad plays music. He plays on on acoustic guitar. And so my whole life was always absorbed with sound and I was always absorbing it like a sponge. There are moments where I'd sit in the car and, you know, back in the old days where you'd actively listen to radio and <laughs> and I'd just learn. Burn on me. I'd le- right <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I'm so sorry. I actually didn't mean that at all. And I just briefly had an out-of-body experience not realizing I'm actually on a, on a radio show. So I might retract that. What I mean to say is like before you could have CDs in the car or before you could just play songs off your phone and sort of curate your taste a lot more the radio was sort of how I was introduced to a lot of music in the car um and so you know I'd often be singing songs around the house singing them wrong too by the way like just complete mondegreens I was still half learning how to construct sentences so a lot of the songs came out wrong my mum has a very funny story about when I was little Leanne Rhymes's Can't Fight the Moonlight I used to sing that all the time and I had no front teeth so <laughs> Uh, fight came out as a very different word and mum found it absolutely hilarious. Uh, but I didn't know what I was saying. So yeah, it's always, always been a part of my life. And then when I was about five, I used to, we had this really old massive piano in our house and it was always out of tune and no one played it. It was kind of just inherited. And um, I used to climb the stool and just muck around on that piano all the time. And then eventually I started sort of playing um, triads together just because it was fun and then my, my parents were like oh this might be well we might have a prodigy on our something. hands we might, here yeah <laughs> I don't know I don't know if prodigy is the right word I, I think it was more that I think for them it was like if she's going to keep bashing this thing we should at least teach her what actually is happening and so she's not just aimlessly throwing her hands all over it um, so I think that's why they put me into lessons I guess Radio is old-fashioned and you don't always get to choose the songs that you're hearing, but I'm assuming at some point along the way your parents had CDs or vinyl playing in the house as well. What kind of music did they play for you? 
Yeah, my my dad used to have cassettes and things, and um, he used to have a big box of them. So eventually, you know, in the car there was a cassette player, and you could throw on. A lot of it was ABBA from both my parents, because my parents are separated as well. So it was kind of very funny because you'd spend a week listening to some types of music, and then you'd go another week and listen to a completely different type. But they were both fans of ABBA, both fans of pub rock. A lot of pub rock was around my house because my dad used to also play in a pub rock band on the weekends. So Cold Chisel, Dragon. Um, I learnt the song Boys Light Up when I was way too young <laughs> to be singing that song. Uh, and my mum was a huge fan of like Gloria Gaynor. Um, I think briefly we had the Marsha Hines CD, which was cool because that was sort of my first introduction to like soul music. Even though it was a lot of covers, I still loved it. And oh, and the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack. Both my parents loved that. Incredible. As well. <laughs> such a huge range um yeah it's so bizarre like it's really (laughs) weird my house it just like there was no boundary on what you could and couldn't listen to it was really great for me but yeah really hard to uh sum up Uh, i i love to you know the image of your dad being like a pub rock musician but then channeling you into classical music yeah down at the piano as well it was really I, I don't know whether that was like as much of a choice or whether that was just the option you had in Bathurst at the time because when you learn an instrument nowadays it's so fantastic how far sort of music education has come because there's lots of options now I feel for kids with different styles of music but back then <laughs> if you wanted to learn an instrument you had to kind of go through the AMEB method mm. and you had to do the exams and you had to do the te- and I while I loved the theory and I loved playing, I hated playing classically because there were so many rules and it was so technique based and I didn't practice at all. So it's like on me, but I never practiced and I, and I never quite got the technique right. So the songs were just really hard and I hated when playing became like a, like a task or a chore because I just loved playing for the sake of playing. So it was um, a bit tricky, but my dad was just hell bent on me becoming Billy Joel. He had the Billy Joel uh, music book in his house and he never really used it because he himself never really learned how to play piano. So it was, he was kind of like, you will learn. <laughs> you will learn and you'll play Piano man or die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why you were born. <laughs> yeah. So I find that interesting that you're not really interested in doing the classical training because, you know, music has mm. gone on to play such a big role in your life. Was there a moment that despite not liking it, you were like, hey, this actually might be a little bit more than just doing lessons. This is actually really important to me. I think my teacher was always very um, frustrated by me because when I got it, I loved it. Like the one, I remember the first song that really clicked for me was probably about five grades in or something, four or five grades in. And it was Moonlight Sonata, as you do, by Beethoven. And there was something different about that song. Like, I don't know what it was. It was just, it felt less confined emotionally. I felt like I could put a lot more of myself into that song and that's when it became fun and I was really like that was probably the best song I ever learned to play like I was very good at it because I practiced it all the time because I loved playing it (laughs) it's never left me but um (laughs) it's it's really interesting because then my teacher was like now why don't you just apply whatever it was that got you to play that song over and over again to every song like it's a job like apply it to everything like you could be really great if you just applied it and I just was you know you're a kid and you're defiant and you go no if it's not fun I won't do it so it's it's I'm glad that I did it but I I, yeah I didn't complete it I did eventually quit I got like one grade before the end and then I said I want to have friends on the weekend I just sort of started high school and I was like nah kids are going to the movies kids are going to the soccer fields and all that stuff I don't want to spend 
three hours a weekend doing this. So I quit. My teacher could have killed me. It was like, (laughs) you're so close. You were almost done. And I just went, no. But that's when I started doing gigs. So it's, it's really funny how it all worked out. And I, I want to talk about you doing gigs later in the show, but yeah, yeah I want to stay in this moment for a little bit because <laughs> despite quitting piano lessons, music obviously still meant a lot to you. And I think mm. that we can see that in a certain Tim Mitchin concert you went to oh. growing up. Why was that so important to you? My God, I don't even think at the time I realised how important that concert would be to me until now. But yeah, my mum was a very relaxed parent in the way that, I mean, a lot of people would probably say that she shouldn't have let me, you know, absorb the kind of stuff that I did. But we spent a lot of time, not only was music a really big part of our lives, but comedy was also a huge part, comedy and theatre and just art. Like she she loved art. She She's still alive. She loves art. <laughs> <laughs> she... <laughs> loves theater she loves and she just let me absorb as much as as much of it as I could but we didn't have a lot of money so you know I wasn't really being whisked away to Broadway to go see shows or you know even Sydney but I became obsessed with Tim Minchin through YouTube I think uh, around the age of maybe 11 or 12 and I started learning his songs and it was very naughty like I'd never play them in front of my parents because I was like oh my god they can't know that I that I know these songs they're not for my age group I knew at the time it was it was wrong and then my mum finally caught me I think she caught me or I showed her one day and it turned out she loved his music too and she just went you know what I'm gonna pick my battles here and just say these songs are very inappropriate but he is very talented so I'm gonna let my kid continue to have a vested interest because you know she plays piano it'll inspire her blah 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 and so for Christmas when I was yeah turning 14 so it was the very very beginning of 2010 she had like lay-bied and paid off two tickets to see him and the Sydney Symphony at the Opera House and it was my first concert like that was like aside from like local productions and things that was like my first professional ticket to a show and we went all the way to the Opera House and we stayed in like a little shoebox hotel and um and then yeah we watched this concert from like up in the stalls and we were like pretty much looking right onto the stage and so it was so incredible and the music was just beautiful like I always knew that Tim's music was really whimsical and kind of just scratches my brain in all the right ways but with a symphony accompanying it and whoever transcribed those arrangements is just like I just want to talk to them for (laughs) hours and be like how did you do it because yeah I left that concert crying and laughing like I was sobbing and (laughs) laughing and it was just probably one of the best concerts still to this day that I think I've ever seen because it was just it was like my dreams being realized. Like I just thought I've been listening to this guy for so long and yeah. But it was really funny because I think a lot of people were looking around going, why is there a child here? Yeah. <laughs> why is this child crying? Is she happy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I and I remember listening to um, Not Perfect and that particular, I'd already heard that song before. It was on my iPod shuffle, but I had never heard it with a symphony before and the symphony version just, yeah, I still cry every time I hear it. Gabby, we were going to play a Robbie Williams song now in honour of the music that your mum used to play when you were growing up, but it feels way more appropriate to play Not Perfect by (laughs) Tim Mitchell. Yeah, I've just realised that we've diverted. Because I will say on the entire car trip there... As a divorced parent, all she listened to was Robbie Williams. Road trips with my mum 
like such as going to that concert were always accompanied by um, Robbie Williams though because I feel like I don't know what it was but every divorced mother in like 2002 to 2015 I think just has to go through this like Robbie Williams phase and so yeah Escapology that album by Robbie Williams was like something that I learned word for word um, without a doubt and I still could sing it in my sleep now I haven't listened to it in ages but uh, yeah, and there was a song on that album that I think it's really funny how it all worked out because I obviously didn't think I'd fall into musical comedy, but I really think that Robbie Williams was kind of like brave in the way that that album was written because I think that Handsome Man by Robbie Williams is actually an exercise in musical comedy, but he was one of the biggest pop stars in the world at that time. So it's kind of amazing that somebody that big could have such tongue-in-cheek lyrics and they really they really verge on like joke after joke after joke I just think it's a really great song Gabby Bolt way to walk us all the way up to the Tim Mitchin song and then just change course completely we're going to jump into Robbie Williams (laughs) instead right now on FBI Radio 94.5 this song is called Handsome Man You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that song was Handsome Man. It was by Robbie Williams and Gabby Bolt, my guest on the show, picked it in reference to her poor recently divorced mother absolutely rinsing it on a car trip to Sydney from <laughs> Bathurst. We're going to take the story back to Bathurst now, Gabby. In your song 12 Pubs, you reveal that you attended a school that was ranked 540. 540- 49th out of 585 <laughs> schools in the state of New South Wales. Tell me oh, about that. <laughs> yeah. I knew that I knew that that lyric was going to come yeah. back to bite me. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I did, to be fair to the school, all right, that ranking is based on my specific HSC years ranking. So it might have just been a statistic anomaly that my year group just wasn't as smart as the rest of the year groups but um yeah so we weren't like it wasn't a bad school I want to make that clear it wasn't like it wasn't a bad school experience but it definitely was you know as most of them are a public school in New South Wales you know funding is constantly being cut and you know certain areas get more money than other areas and so going to a non really not really arts oriented school um and wanting to be an artist is kind of a frustrating thing for a lot of your schooling. So, But, I mean, it kind of also balanced itself out in the end because even though I wanted to do arts and I could have, you know, tried to get into performing arts school or something like that, because I was one of very few amounts of people at that school that wanted to really push arts, I had kind of the entire music room at my disposal most of the time. So they were very good to me in the way that it was like, oh, you clearly like doing this. Here's a key. Uh, if you want to spend lunch times in here, you can, as long as you're practicing something, um, go nuts. So I was very lucky to sort of build a really great rapport with a lot of my teachers there who sort of understood that I think it, for me, it was music or, or, or bust really. I don't think I ever really had much of a backup plan, but yeah, they weren't, they weren't like an incredible amount of like sort of going to the city music based sort of experiences, but that didn't really matter. I, I think I, I learned a lot and I had a lot of room to fail as well, which was 
a good thing now that I look back on it. Let's talk about the gigging. What was gigging yeah. like in Bathurst? What's the live music scene like there? <laughs> the music, the, the, uh, as it is now, the music community is one of the closest and one of my fondest memories to look at, look at now because uh, I've made some really, really dear friends through doing gigs and sharing gigs with people and sharing set lists with people in Bathurst. And yeah, as a youngster, it was quite funny because some of the gigs you do would just be really crazy. Like I remember once I did a gig, <laughs> I did a gig for a council Christmas party and, and it was in this really ritzy like restaurant and I was like a 16 year old and I only had to play like four songs. And that was like the first time I realized that sometimes the money doesn't exactly equal the time because I played something like four songs and got paid 200 bucks and I thought that every gig would be like that. Not true. Uh, <laughs> so that was a really weird gig. Another really weird gig that I played was a Christmas party in someone's backyard and it was the coolest gig I think still that I've ever done <laughs> because there was like a massive feed and it was kind of one of those things where everyone brought their own thing to feed everybody and there was like, you know, meat on a spit and all this stuff and just drinks everywhere. But I was only 17. I can say this now. It's all right. I won't name any <laughs> names. Uh I was only 17, so my mum would drop me to this gig and I started playing and the drunker they got, the better I was. And so then they ended up going, hey, can we do karaoke? And I just sort of learned to go with the flow. I was like, yeah, sure, let's plug in some karaoke. Go nuts. And then I built such a rapport with them that I walked away from that gig having two ciders, a whole finished meal and like an extra $100 on top of the already 300 bucks that they paid me. <laughs> and I just walked away going, this was an exercise in networking. Well, it's funny. You're talking about this like period of your life as having a lot of space to fail, but it also seems like there's a lot of space to learn how to win a crowd over and a mm. lot of space to succeed as well. Yeah. And I guess you take that training to Sydney eventually. Gabby, what brought you to Sydney? Yeah. Are we talking about this time or the first? Time. The first time you moved to Sydney. Ah, the first <laughs> time I moved to Sydney was probably half actually wanting to and half get me the hell out of Bathurst because you do go through that phase. Like if you've been brought up in Bathurst your whole life or in any kind of regional centre, you've lived there your entire life, you've never lived anywhere else and, you know, you kind of go, oh, look, the gigs are great and whatever, but no one really appreciates art here, which is just not true. Uh, <laughs> and no one really puts money towards art. Again, not true, but I was in my head and I went, I got to get out. It was a full ladybird situation. And I auditioned for a music college. I auditioned for a few actually. Uh, and then I got into one in Sydney and, you know, I was like, this is it. <laughs> I'm going to move. It's going to be like, bite my dust, everyone. I'm going to go and get famous and, <laughs> and be a musician. And so, I, and so that's what brought me to Sydney initially was going to music college. And as you mentioned before, it was the first time because you didn't stay in Sydney. Why <laughs> yeah. did you give up on the dream? If I could go back and do it again, I think I'd take a gap year and really think about and really go and explore all of these campuses and really see what it's actually like. Because the one thing I will say is the, the university I chose to go to was a private university and that's that they get you with the auditions. So they make the audition look really, you know, immersive and you're going to learn so much and we've got all these amazing people that come in and blah, blah, blah. And then when you actually go there, sometimes you sort of realise that not a lot of thought was put into certain classes and, you know, you couldn't really network very well. Not a lot of industry professionals came through. I will say there were 
uh, a couple of incredible teachers that I still think on to this day from that school in terms of what they actually gave me personally. But in terms of like an actual school and an industry, I just thought the amount that it was costing me, whether it was hex or not, I just sort of thought I don't want to pay off this incredibly huge debt for a school that I'm honestly just kind of not really learning all that much from. Uh, so I made the decision to leave after about two trimesters, um, which was a hard decision to make. But I, yeah, I did make the decision. And then I lived in a share house for a bit. And for about a year, I worked at Ikea. And that's what I did. And then after, you know, nothing makes you want to move back home than working in retail for an entire year in Sydney. It's kind of soul destroying in a way. <laughs> Let's soundtrack this period of your life, Gabby. Yeah. <laughs> What's the next song you've picked to play on the show today? So the next song I've picked is from Leanne Le Harvest. It's called Midnight. And it was one of the first songs that my teacher, who actually, I don't know if anyone would recognize, she herself probably would be like, who? To me. But um, we were only together a brief time. But my, my teacher was Diana Ruvas and she recently won The Voice in Australia. She and, and it's not a gimmick. Like She actually, to me, is one of the most incredible vocalists I think I've ever ever heard in my life but my voice was ruined when we first met absolutely destroyed because I'd never had singing lessons until I met her and so she had to rehabilitate my voice and so she had to find artists that had beautiful soft spoken vocals so that I wouldn't if I were to cover their songs I wouldn't scream because all of my favorite singers were like Janis Joplin <laughs> and Foo Fighters and it was all just screaming so she's like let's find you some artists in some nice R&B songwriter stuff and one of the first artists she showed me and I still love to this day has heavily influenced my writing is Leanne La Le Harvest. Awesome. This song is called Midnight. It's by Leon La Harvest. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 with me, Mia Hull, and comic Gabby Bolt. That was Midnight by Leanne La Harvest, and you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by musician, comic, and writer for The Chaser, Gabby Bolt. Gabby, what did your life look like when COVID-19 entered the scene? It is such a wild story. I think everyone has this kind of wild origin story, though, through the last two years. I think I don't think anyone went into 2020 the same person that they're coming out of 2021 as, but... I, yeah, I was a music teacher. I was a sole trader. I was running a business from my house. So I was already working from home. So it kind of worked out well for me. But I, um, yeah, I was, I was a music teacher and I was sort of, I just released my EP a couple of years prior and I was working on an album because I was still hell bent on being a serious musician. And I, um, yeah, I was kind of just plodding along and I think about, I was thinking about making plans to sort of make moves, you know, felt a little bit stuck. And then the end of term one of 2020, which would have been around, yeah, March, April, every single music teacher and like soul trader and tutor in Bathurst got that email from the government being like, we're shutting school down for two weeks, the last two weeks of term one. You're not permitted to work. You're not permitted to like it's COVID. It was back when, you know, COVID was this completely unknown absolutely unfeasible thing and all of a sudden it just seemed like overnight it was taking over the entire world so I was stuck without work for two weeks and um, 
yeah, I got really down in the dumps about the news and there were so many news gaffes going on and like slip ups because everyone was in completely unknown territory in the public media. And so, yeah, I turned to TikTok as, a, as an outlet, really, because I wasn't writing any songs and I wasn't doing any work and I was wearing pajamas like 90% of the time. Is there a reason you chose to go to TikTok to create stuff when you were saying you were in the space of making serious music and being considered a serious musician? Yeah. Why did you want to make, you know, fun stuff <laughs> on the internet? I think it's like it's so hard to explain but for me it was kind of just this playground that no one ever would find me on like I'd been observing it for a little while and I had you know liked a couple of videos I hadn't really make it made anything and I had no followers and so I just sort of I had a stupid pasta name share us into your TikTok handle Gabby <laughs> oh yeah God, it's so bad it's a uh, fettuccine feta queen mm-hmm. and I thought I was being slick <laughs> with that one yeah because I just sort of thought my, my students are never going to make that correlation between me and pasta they're never gonna it was just a dumb name and yeah so that's why I just sort of wanted a place to have a play have an escape have an outlet it, it was never supposed to turn into a career, but mm, here we are. But here we are because, yeah, yeah, you were talking about, you know, all the gaffes that were happening on TV and people navigating uncharted yeah. territory was obviously makes a lot of space to poke fun at, which is just what you did on your TikTok. Yeah. Tell me about some of the videos that you were making at the time. So my first, the first video that to me blew up uh, at about 700 likes, which was unheard of for me at the time. <laughs> was I, I took the ScoMo Andrew interaction, if everyone remembers that, Andrew Proben and ScoMo, um, at the press conference where he was like, you know what? No, 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 it's it's Catherine's turn. Yeah, you don't run the and press conference. It was a bit of a, like, <laughs> yeah, that's it. You don't run the press conference. God, I forgot already. <laughs> you don't run the press conference. And a couple of people on TikTok I had noticed were like lip syncing to it. It was this massive tongue-in-cheek thing among Australians and um, lip syncing to it, reciting it. Somebody made a dance beat out of it. And I went, everyone's got this all wrong. It's not, it's not a dance beat. It's not a lip sync. It's, it's a love song. Like it's this R&B love song. So I turned, turned it into a love song and I, then I turned it into a duet and then a trio with Catherine's part. And I ended up just making it this big exercise in creating this complete parody of itself. And then that, yeah, once you do that, people start requesting other things. Like somebody said, can you do jigsaw puzzles? You talked about jigsaw puzzles today. So then I made a jigsaw puzzle song and, and it was a lot of fun because there was, absolutely no writing involved in the way that I just had to write the music. None of the lyrics had to come from me. And so at that point, I don't think anybody really understood that I actually could write lyrics at all because I kind of just took whatever verbatim was said and made that um, into songs. It was a silly little exercise, but it actually sort of kept me on track and it kind of became a bit of a job that I liked doing. So Mm -hmm. they didn't really do very well, though, at first on TikTok, but I didn't really care. It was more, again, it was just a, it was a brain dump space for me. But you would have songs to go on and do very, very well on TikTok, which we'll talk about in a few (laughs) minutes time. But first, I want to talk about how Kevin Rudd became involved in your life. Gabby, tell me that story. (laughs) Oh, Kev, 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 Kev. (laughs) It's been a while since I've heard from him. Um, Yeah, so... I've always been very politically minded. Uh, I don't I don't like to say that very often because a lot of people hear that and think that I'm trying to be divisive or I'm trying to um, polarize my audience. But I've always been raised to be to be a political thinker to try and sort of, you know, get down to the policy of everything. And so, yeah, you know, uh, the more that my Ozpol Media Moment song series went on, it became Ozpol quotes. Like I took Paul Keating's words and put them into a song and I put Julia Gillard's speech, misogyny speech into a song and... And it was a lot of fun for me. And I think it's very important to encourage young people to 
not vote a certain way. I don't have any interest in trying to sway people or lobby for somebody, but just to become politically minded. I think there's too much apathy in this country towards how valuable a vote is and how valuable your intelligence is and how you shouldn't undersell what you can do um, with your vote. So, yeah, I think it was it was made at the time when uh, K. Rudd had just sort of announced this Murdoch Royal Commission into, you know... Um, fair reporting, fair journalism. And that is something I think, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, you should have a vested interest in. And so for me, I justified it by being like, no, I actually do think this is a really good thing for everybody. And so for me, I made this really horrible, like 80s style sort of jackbeat rap that I was like, I shouldn't rap, but I'm doing it. And it was sort <laughs> of a play on like the whole to serve with love, sort of the teacher's going to rap thing. Um, and it was about why I think everybody should put their name onto that petition because at the time it just felt like it was the only thing you could really do about this whole Murdoch situation. And he caught notice of it and he reshared it on his Twitter and he tweeted it with the words, I wasn't game enough to duet this time, but everyone should listen to this. And so I took that as a challenge and I said, oh, this time. So there's a next time. That's what my head said. Yeah. I went, right. So if I do another <laughs> one, he'll get involved. And so I wrote another one and I all I had to do was like I wrote him a song that was like, I think we should sign this petition, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, I left a space for him. I made a rhyme for him to just say his name. He had to do no singing whatsoever. He just had to go, I'm Kevin Rudd at the very end. And then I woke up the next day and he, I don't know who taught him how to duet on TikTok because he had barely made any videos at that point and he duetted it. And he sang, like he sang ad-libs. I got an ex-prime minister to voluntarily sing when that's not their expertise. Uh, and yeah, he was doing like ad-libs in the breaks. And at the end, he sang, I'm Kevin Rudd. And it was just like this really beautiful moment. I just loved that he was up for it. I think it was just nice. It was my first lesson in like charming your way into a joke. Because I think that's the thing you've got to, you, if you're going to get into like political satire or you know, stunting or anything like that. You have to be, you actually have to be quite charming. You have to be nice. You can't be aggressive because it doesn't get response. But it was really, mm. it was really lovely. And I kind of freaked out. I was like, this is crazy. This is stupid. Because this whole time I'm still just teaching from my house in Bathurst. I had no career in comedy or in fame at all. I was just teaching. And so I had to kind of freak out in between lessons. And I didn't tell any of my students and then, mm. uh, yeah, a little while after that, he sent me a little car flag. He signed a little Kevin 07 car oh, flag. And he Kevin. sent it to me in a tube. Yeah. I was like, how do you find out where Stop. I live? <laughs> but yeah, it was, yeah, it was really, it was a nice interaction. And, uh, you know, it's great because now on my comedy shows, I get to say, has duetted with Kevin Rudd. So it's um <laughs> pretty, pretty great name drop when you get, you know, like those party name drops you do if you need it. Yeah. It's great to have. Keep keep that one in the back pocket. Absolutely. And I will pop a link to that infamous Kevin Rudd <laughs> duet up on the programmers page on FBIRadio.com. So once you finish listening to this, go and listen to Kevin Rudd's voice <laughs> as well. It's beautiful. He's got a great set yeah, of Yeah, we pipes. need to get we need to get the man a career. I know. We give him an album. <laughs> and while we're talking about a great set of pipes, Gabby, you've chosen a song by Smith and Jones to play on the show today. Yes, I have. These girls are an alt country duo from Bathurst. Um, who basically raised me in in everything I, I do. They're kind of like, I call them my performance big sisters or my performance mothers because the two of them have known me since I started, like since I was about 11 doing those gigs at Bathurst Memorial Entertainment Centre and 
they've just been such a guiding light for me with every problem I ever had. It was so nice to have a mentor to help me through. And that's kind of carried through my life now. Like now I have comedy mentors that I can rely on in the same way. And I still, I still have such a great relationship with them. And, um, they're just, and they're, and I just think I get a lot of my songwriting from them as well. I think a lot of it rubbed off on me and I just think that they're really, really fantastic and more people need to hear their music. So I've picked my favorite song by them. It's called, How Could I Forget? I want to be alone with you again, cause baby I am missing you again. Remember how we go down by the river on a Saturday night, when the moon was laying low and the stars were shining bright. Oh, you baby blues sparkling in the that song was called How Could I Forget on FBI Radio 94.5. It was by Smith & Jones, a duo who I just found out come from Bathurst, which is funny because the guest who I am joined today by on Out of the Box is also from Bathurst, comedian and writer for The Chaser, Gabby Bolt. We just talked about how your TikTok career kicked off and the songs that you started to make and, you know, edging towards fame. Let's talk about the musical based on Pixar's 2007 <laughs> film Ratatouille. It's called Ratatouzical. For someone who's yes. maybe not on TikTok or not on that side of TikTok, Gabby, can you walk me through <laughs> what this musical is? Well, first of all, if you were never on that side of TikTok, uh, I'm so happy for you because uh, it was an absolute never-ending black pool of just content basically what had happened was one creator emily jacobson had made this like song in jest that just sort of went like remy the ratatouille the rat of all my dreams and it was just this massive meme essentially because nobody really knew where it came from or why it happened <laughs> and then daniel mertzlaft who is a composer in new york a young composer he's like sort of around the same age as me but has a lot of experience on Broadway and transcribing sort of took that joke and made like this Broadway arrangement of it which also then blew up into its own very funny meme and most musicians that came across that were like this is pretty funny because it's just so much commitment to such a stupid little ditty and um, then what happened was everyone went well if this is for a musical it needs a song about Colette and they need a song about Remy and they need a song about this. And, and all of these artists from all over the world, not just musicians, but like actors, costume makers, choreographers, everyone just sort of started contributing to this massive piss take. Um, purely, I think, because everybody was locked down. Like it was just, I mean, in Australia at that time, we were actually sort of, this was sort of towards the end of last year where things were actually starting to look a little bit brighter at the time. But in America... Everyone was firmly locked down in their houses. And so it really just became this never-ending train of rat content. <laughs> and so I, I was observing this because my algorithm is very based on comedy and based on music. And so a lot of that sort of content came my way anyway. Um, and then I went, you know what? No one, uh, no one that I had seen had written a song for the dad yet. And when I watched Ratatouille, that's the guy I remember every time because he's like this sort of godfather-esque mob boss kind of rat, <laughs> big dude who's like, don't change anything. Progression is bad. We're just rats. And at one point, I think he says, like, there's treasure in trash. And so for me, I, still, I thought about this way too much. Like, I've never really given this explanation ever before because I thought it would make me look really lame and clearly it's doing the right job. But anyway, <laughs> I went, 
I've got a spare 40 minutes before I start teaching. I've got this song in my head. I may as well just make it and put it online. No one will see it because at that point, my audience was all Australian people who'd followed me for the Kevin Rudd singing content and they weren't into musical theatre. I don't know why they would be. I'm not even really into musical theatre, so it's not going to blow up. It's just an outlet, whatever. And so I made it in about, yeah, about 40, 45 minutes, filmed it very rushedly, edited it very rushed and then uploaded it. And because I was teaching, (laughs) I just didn't look at my phone because I was like, I can't sit there on my phone while I'm teaching students. So I I completely ignored it. And then I was so tired at the end of the day, I just kind of went to bed. And then the next morning I woke up and it had 80,000 likes. Like America had finally found me. They'd never really found me before. And it was just, it was this completely uncontrollable snowball from that point. I want to talk about it snowballing because it snowballed in a very big way. You refer to it as a piss take that was just living on the For You page (laughs) of people who are into musical comedy. But Yeah, that's how it started. Yeah, but then, you know, it's turned into... A real life musical, yeah. Gabby. It's a, it's, it's, it's a 2020 Frankenstein. That's exactly what happened. Like it, eventually we became the monster we created. It was like you kind of couldn't differentiate whether it was a joke anymore because then really big names started getting involved. I mean, Kevin Chamberlain ended up making his own song and he's like a Disney star and a musical theatre star. Andrew Barth Feldman, who's played Evan Hansen on Broadway, got involved with a song with he and his friend Nathan wrote. And I'm just kind of like, like it it just it was it was still a meme but it was getting recognition i did an interview with rolling stone as well as a lot of the other <laughs> i know like it's ridiculous like i don't even mean like the australian rolling stone i mean the american rolling stone they called me and they were like we're rolling stone we want to do an interview about ratatouzical and i was it sounds like, like a poorly written movie like it doesn't it's even sound PM. real <laughs> It's it was bizarre. Playbill made a fake Playbill for it. Like it was, and then eventually, so many companies get involved that you kind of go, "This is we have to finish this on a bang." Like this, we can't just leave this in the abyss. People are mm. getting involved, you know. Mm. And and Patton Oswalt, that was the moment I knew it was out of control. Patton Oswalt, if you don't know, is the original voice of Remy in the movie Ratatouille, and he mm. retweeted my song um, because my song got a duet from a particular account, Shoebox Musicals, Chris at Shoebox Musicals, and he makes these like miniaturized sets of stages, and he made a set for my song about. Uh, trash and it was like this it was amazing it was like this revolving stage and like a green wash came over the stage and there was like haze and so he retweeted that video and he was like at brad bird have you seen this and brad bird is the director and writer of the movie ratatouille and when i saw that on twitter i was like this is (laughs) completely out of my hands now like Patton oswalt has heard me sing it was ridiculous and so yeah Mm. eventually cut forward about a month and a half um after you know a month and a half of just people observing this and loving it or hating it and all of that uh, a broadway production company seaview productions contacted me via email and they were like hi gabby so we want to make it we want to make it as a fundraiser disney have given us the okay to do it as an actors fund fundraiser one night only uh virtual event we're going to get broadway caliber artists to do it uh can we use your song we'll pay you uh, we just want permission. We really want to use your song. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I didn't take it seriously at all. I, I The first day I got it, I was like, this has to be spam. It, it was originally sent to my spam folder as well. So I was just like, this can't be right. And then the Ratatouzical writers jumped in an inbox together on Instagram. And we were all like, did you all get this? 
and we all got it. And so we were like, oh, oh crap, it's real. Like, it's real. We have to sign it. So I signed the documents. I sent it back. And then they let me co-orchestrate it. So it was going to be they, – they, they just very casually said, oh, it'll be played by a 20-piece orchestra. And you go – okay so they let me co-orchestrate my own song which was such an exercise in agility and trying to get the notes out right I only got half of it done in the way that I did a couple of instruments but I didn't really know how to write for oboe so I was like I'm just gonna let them do that but they were great they let me write my own parts in and then they took those parts and fixed them and changed them and it was yeah and it was so and then you know they announced the cast and when they announced the cast that was the first time I had ever seen the cast list as well so I freaked out it was absolutely crazy it was insane and with all that preamble gabby i feel like it's only fair to let us hear your song from ratatouzical trash is our treasure which you've prepared to play live on the show today (gasps) oh yes i haven't played it in a while so i hope it goes well (laughs) right now on fbi radio 94.5 i am joined by gabby bolt my guest on out of the box today and we're about to jump into a song written and sung by gabby bolt a track from the ratatouzical music It's called Trash is Our Treasure. Take it away. Don't waste your whiskers on dreaming. Try to see life as I do. Take in the smell of it steaming. This wonderful dump here in front of you. Trash is our treasure. It's all that we need. Why ask for better when we're comfortably finding the good in the garbage, the gold in the gruel? One human's trash is another rat's fuel. And you there, young Remy, are yet to find out that that's what the life of a rat's all about. Even I won't deny your ambition. Your powerful snout is your drive. So listen to my proposition. Use that sensitive snooter to keep us alive. Trash is our nature. It's all that we want. Take it from me. I'm your confidant. Finding the pierce de resistance among the cesspit. I don't understand who could want more than this. How free you will feel when you finally find out that that's what the life of a rat's all about. Imagine there's a rat dance break here. Fun fact, when Wayne Brady sang this song, he made his own props. No one told him to do that. Cherry on top, there's no chance of failure. The 
there's no room for doubt Cause that's what the life of a rat That's what the life of a rat That's what the life of a rat's all about <laughs> Incredible! It's been a while since I sang that Gabby Bolt right here on FBI Radio (laughs) 94.5. That was a live rendition of her song, Trash is Our Treasure, a part of the Ratatouzical musical, a song that (laughs) we just discussed started off as a joke and snowballed out of control. And look, the snowball just keeps on rolling down the hill, Gabby. I want to jump to 2021 now where the snowball (laughs) changed shape a little bit. What brought you back to Sydney? Well, I had done this podcast called Irrational Fear um, and I did it via Zoom in probably around September, October of 2020 with Dan Illich, who sort of reached out to me via Twitter and was like, hey, do you want to do one of your, you know, little one minute songs on my show and be a a fear monger on the show? And I was like, yeah, I do. I do want to do that. And the day before the show, he was like, now you can do one of the songs you've already written. There's no pressure, blah, blah, blah. But it was coming up to Melbourne Cup. And I saw it as an opportunity to write a song about the Melbourne Cup. So I wrote like this, it was only meant to be like a minute long, but I wrote this like three minute song about the Melbourne Cup and I sent it to him the day before. And he was like, this is great. How quickly did you write that? And I said, I wrote it yesterday. I just wanted to know if you liked it. And so then he really took me under his wing after that because he messaged me around January and he was like, listen, I'm doing this show, uh, the 100th episode show at Giant Dwarf Theatre and I would love for you to be there. Are you going to be around? And I sort of had already made plans with my partner and a couple of my really close friends from Bathurst uh, to move. We were already moving because we were just like, you know, nothing makes you want to move again than being stuck in your house in Bathurst for a whole year. So, yeah, I said, oh, OK, I guess I guess I will. And I still think at that point comedy wasn't really on the cards. I was kind of just like, I guess I will try this gig. And, and if it goes well, I'll move from there. But Otherwise, I'd landed another teaching gig in Sydney. So I was like, I guess I'll just teach and get by and save up and have experiences. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And then um, I did this gig and he didn't tell me until the day before that I was sharing the stage with Hamish Blake, Chris Taylor, Yumi Steins, Alice Fraser, Hot Dub Time Machine and Lewis Hobber and himself. And I rocked up and I remember sitting on the stage and just feeling like, what the heck am I doing here? Like, why am I here? Um, This is bonkers. I've done one episode of this show. These people have been, you know, contacts of Dan for years. Like, oh, oh, I feel I'm out of place. I feel so out of place. I'm I'm out of place. I'm out of place. And then it came time to play my first song. And the moment I played my first song, it completely flipped. I don't know what happened, but I finished the song and I went, wait, wait, no, I like this. I really like doing this. I think it was the first time I'd ever finished a gig and been like, this is what I want to do. It felt like, you know, that feeling like when a mother says in a danger situation, they can lift a car to save their kid. Mm. That's how it felt finishing that day. I just was like, I wanted to kick a bin or something. I was like, I want to kick stuff. It was very weird. Um, <laughs> but then after that, yeah, Dan you know, really took me under his wing. And, he, and after that, he said, do you, I'm doing a show in Melbourne for the comedy festival. Do you want to come and be on the panel for that? And I obviously I was like, hello. I'm, yeah, I'll come to Melbourne. I've never really been like I've been there for 24 hours once, but I stayed mostly in a hotel room when I was younger. And so being able to go to the festival and to go for free 
um, and see stuff was just so incredible. So yeah, I took him up on that. And that as well, I think a lot of those gigs and a lot of my TikTok content got me noticed by The Chaser, which is another story because I was working as a music teacher and that is the weirdest job I think I've ever gotten that I didn't even know I applied for. Because I got this call out of the blue one day from Charles Firth, my boss and original Chaser member. And it was just basically him going, listen, been noticing your stuff online. You want to come work for us? And I went, you're joking. This is a joke. You guys work for The Chaser. I don't know why you're punching down like this, but this has to be some sort of prank. <laughs> and I actually wouldn't even believe him until I said to him on the phone, I was like, listen, I'm going to need something in writing. I can't just quit my job. It was crazy. I'd only been working there for about eight weeks. And, you know, we live in Sydney and the economy is tight. So I really needed to be sure that I needed to quit my job to do this job. And there was a definite job waiting for me. Anyway, he sent over the paperwork via email. He was like, no, I'm serious. This, I want to offer you a job. And so, of course, you know, that was like a golden opportunity on a platter. I just went, oh, of course. I've been watching The Chaser since I was way too young to have been watching The Chaser. I'll absolutely come and work for you. And so that's how I got a job in comedy and also got more gigs in comedy. It's, if I, I am very aware that it's a massive fluke and also I'm very lucky. Um, but it's so fitting as well because it's like the chaser, it, it's all the things that we've talked about throughout the show, like yeah. you being politically engaged, your interest in comedy, yeah. if you're wanting to make a statement with the creative media you make. Yeah, I, I don't really believe in many things. I don't really believe in superstitions or even manifestation very much, but that felt like... When I got that job, I kind of just felt like that was written for me in the way that when I was little, I would look at what they did and be like, God, I wish I was brave enough to do stuff like that. Like, imagine that being your job. Imagine how fun that would be. And mm. then when I got it, I actually had to call my mum and be like, something really full circle and weird has just happened and I need to tell you. And she freaked out. She was so worried for me, though. She was like, oh, just don't get in trouble. <laughs> Don't mm. get arrested, all of that stuff. She's but. thinking about like the apex stunt. Yeah, because <laughs> she's thinking I shouldn't have showed her all of those <laughs> things. But yeah, I, I think I just, I got very, very lucky in the comedy scene. And I think, you know, I think a lot of women particularly have had to really struggle through the crappy stand-up sets and the and the crappy pay and the crappy treatment for years and years and years. And, you know, now that I get this opportunity to kind of just do what I do and be myself I've I've been very very lucky to be able to say that I think I've been 100% my myself through all of my comedy so it's I feel very lucky to be able to have said that because I know for so long in comedy particularly women have had to sort of change who they are change their outlook change what they say to fit a mold um, and I'm very lucky to be able to say that I don't feel like I have to do that at this point in my career anyway but yeah, I just wanted to say that I feel like I got very lucky and I'm very thankful to the people who probably made that possible before me. Gabby, what does the future hold for you? I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. I I mean, I've been very lucky to be able to finally get my debut show written and that's something I never thought I'd ever have the stamina or the intelligence to do. Um, but I feel very proud of it, even though it is a bit of a... Like, I know it's one of those things that I put so much pressure on myself to be good at stuff straight away. Don't know where that comes from, but I, like even piano and stuff, I was always like, you know, I have to be good immediately or I give up. Um, I don't want to work. And I've had to learn through comedy that the half of the job is jokes and half of the job is actually really hard work and rewriting and editing and changing. And so I think, yeah, putting on my first show and it's like a musical comedy show and it's 100% me. It's very authentic to my, my thoughts and my life. Um, is 
probably the only thing I really think about in the future in terms of <laughs> like my career. Um, and I'm hoping it goes well. Like I'm so worried <laughs> that you know, I'm going to have to keep changing it and keep warping it. But it's kind of exciting as well. Apart from that, I really don't know. I try not to think about it too much because I don't want to. I don't want to place a false narrative on it or or ignore what could be. I mean, if I had never said yes to a crazy rat show or to a crazy job at the Chaser, I don't know what I would be doing right now. So, yeah, it's um, it's sort of just a a wealth of yeses, I think. And that show, of course, is called "I Hope My Keyboard Doesn't Break" by Gabby Bolt. It's happening tonight at the Factory Theatre at 9:30 p.m. It's also going to be on Friday and Saturday, and I'll put all the links to that one up in the programs page on fbiradio.com. Gabby, we've heard your voice in a couple of different ways during the show today. You've sung to us, you've spoken to us, and we're going to close it out with another song as well. Tell me about the song you're about to play. Uh, the song I've chosen to end the interview with is a song that's actually very personal to me and it's it's called 12 Pubs and it's a song about growing up in a regional area and it's kind of like a love letter to Bathurst and to my upbringing. Before you jump into that, Gabby, I did just want to say thank you so much for jumping out of the box oh, today. Oh, thank you. No, it's been such a great chat. I think you've made me kind of really think about my life linearly, which is not something I get the chance to do very often. So thank you, Mia. Amazing. We are about to jump into that song, 12 Pubs by Gabby Bolt, a live rendition right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, performed by my guest on the show today. And if you did want to listen back to that song or the rest of the show you can do so on the programs page on fbiradio.com where you'll also find links to all of the things that we've spoken about you can also listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts big shout out to super producer tash for getting all of the prep done for this episode and stay tuned lunch is right around the corner two shopping centers right next to each other and a bakery on every street One computer works reliably in the library and it operates on Windows XP. The graffiti is not a tourist attraction, it just displays a tag or a public mockery. Call Julie for a good time. And the busiest strip in town is made of two McDonald's, three car washes and one high-risk, low-reward KFC. Could go back today, but one thing always gets in my way. I can't let them know that I'm piss weak now. I used to buy two buck coffees, now I ask for oat milk because real milk lets me down, and I die at four degrees. I used to be happy to play Kaysen and drink crap beer out of crap cans, and the truth is that cities are full of snobbery. Still in love with a town with 12 pubs and no beach. My high school was rated 549 out of 585 in the state. But 36th worst school was still great. And my gigs were far more comforting because people clapped me for simply just showing up to play. Oh, you're going to play a little bit of music? Oh, that's nice. Good for you. And the idea of an exciting time was a party at a paddock and cheap cask wine and making bongs out of things that would anger the FDA. 
And if I wanted to eat, I had the same restaurant with the same order and all the staff knew my name. Yeah, thanks, Julie. I'll just have the chicken enchilada again. Cheers. I could go back tonight, but the only train's already gone. And besides, I can't let them know that I'm batshit now. I used to just walk to work. Now it takes two trains and a bus to get around. But I can play life can't get worse. I used to pay pennies for a three-bedroom palace. Now I pay more in rent than Trump paid in taxes. It's a wonder why I ever moved at all. I'm still in love with a town with 12 pubs and two malls. When I was there, I hated everything. I was always bored and I would sit and dream about getting some culture, feeling the vibe. But I've grown up to learn that it's all a lie. The story in the city's been tweaked for tender and rural towns have more tales than a brother's grim memoir. Just a tiny town with too many pubs and some life. So I can't let them know that I miss them now. I miss the kids that bully me in coals. I miss the local plays who have the pressure up. They'd act like you were playing to the Tony Awards. I miss taking cash-only jobs and cheap Tuesday meals, gossiping about stuff that probably wasn't even real. And the truth is that cities aren't all they're cracked up to be. I'm still in love with a town with 12 pubs, but no me. Thank you. Ha, <laughs> ha,